welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. On my guest on today's podcast are a married couple, I'm Dr. Christine Coons and her wife, Laura. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thank you. Um, we're going to talk about Christine's, and she is a doctor, we'll talk about that journey with gender dysphoria. Um, and she has come out as transgender and has stayed in her marriage. Um, so she uses he, she, her pronouns that refer to each other as wife um, because that's the way they look at each other. Um, and they're both active in the church. And so this is a story to help us as Latter-day Saints and beyond better support transgender Latter-day Saints. And I've felt that's best. I'm hearing directly from transgender Latter-day Saints. And Christine's really brave to be on the podcast. We've interacted for a couple of months. I think it was Monica Phillips who's been on the podcast a few times that knows your story and thought it'd be terrific for you to be on the story. Um, Christine and, and Laura met at BYU. Um, pretty typical story of falling in love and getting married. Um, Christine mm-hmm. served a mission in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, Laura got a degree in food science. Um, Christine went on um, the long journey to become a doctor of internal medicine. That includes med school residency, and you've walked this road together. Um, they are mm-hmm. celebrating during this podcast their 20th year anniversary. They live in Spokane, Washington, but they're doing the Zoom from Hawaii. And I think that's a great place to be spending. And you're both just smiling. Um, <laughs> so we hope this podcast doesn't take too long. So you can go out and enjoy Hawaii. They have four kids, age 18 to 8. Um, Christine came out about 11 years into their marriage. Um, that would be about 2014. And so this is just a unique story of um, a wonderful couple that's, and that's working through this together. Um, this will talk, it's a suicide trigger warning. We often do in these podcasts when someone bravely opens up about suicidal ideation. And um, that's been part of Christine's story and it's a real turning point for her on um, how she was going to handle this. And it took a lot of courage um, to reach out to the suicide hotline. Please call, text, chat 988 if you're suicidal. Uh, we said a prayer before we started, and I've just felt a wonderful spirit of these two women and their courage to share this story. And um, is that okay for an introduction, you two? Oh, yeah, wonderful. That's wonderful. Yes. That's fantastic. So um, we will turn it over. Whoever wants to start, I assume Christine's going to take the lead here and, and tell oh, her story sure. with long-term gender dysphoria and, and this beautiful love story of your marriage. Um, so... I, I'm talking too much, listeners. Let's get Christine talking. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to start out with my history a bit. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on it because I do. I have shared this story a lot, and I really want to see. I want to share a lot about what's happening now um, because there's a lot of really good people that I have interacted with that I would love to share a bit of those interactions. So I grew up in the church. Um, my parents are uh, active. My mom was a convert. And ever since my earliest childhood memories, I always remember having gender dysphoria. Um, it was always this battle in my head of trying to understand myself in relation to the church and seeing myself in the mirror. Um, for those who remember the 1980s uh, and 90s, there was a, uh, a lot of scare around uh, HIV 
um, my family was actually a very big participant in that. My um, next older brother actually contracted HIV from a blood transfusion. And so we were actually in the newspapers. We actually were on 90 Minutes. Wow. Or 60, 60 Minutes. Oh, my gosh. 60 Minutes. Extra special. Extra special. Yeah. <laughs> Extra special episode. Um, so a lot of our growth experience centered around my brother. And um, so I, I tried my best to lay low and stay out of the limelight and try to deal with the gender dysphoria um, growing up on my own. Um, I knew my parents were focusing in a lot on that. And um, so I, I did my best to follow the, the church handbook, the, our understanding about gospel principles. The things that really helped me growing up was realizing that if I overworked myself, if I gave myself a lot of things to do, uh, whether it was physically or mentally, I could cope per se with the emotions of having gender dysphoria. So we made it into um, undergraduate work. Um, I graduated in food science and uh, minored in business and um, chemistry, went straight into medical school, went right into medical residency, went into chief residency, and I relished all the work that I was given to me. Um, actually it was one of those things when, uh, my third year of residency came along they made the decision to choose me as the chief resident. The program director pulled me into his office and said, I'm going to give you the option of getting out if you want, because here's what's happening. Um, this was the time when the osteopathic world and the allopathic training world were combining and we needed to rewrite the, uh, program. And I was going to be the one responsible for helping do most of the work behind rewriting this. And I, I delighted in that idea. I was moonlighting on the side, which is working extra. Um, I don't think I slept very much during that entire experience. I don't think you did either. (laughs) Yeah, you're gone a lot. (laughs) And yeah, that, that was my experience. And so in 2014, uh, March, 2014 was when I actually opened up to Laura um, I realized that all that stuff that I had built up to protect myself was going to completely disappear. I would have to start over. We were moving to Spokane, Washington, and it was going to all go away. And so I was in the kitchen standing there just thinking about all this, like, what was I going to do next? How was I going to approach this dramatic change going from this overworked situation to starting over afresh? And the I had this very spiritual experience. Um, I was standing there and got this impression that have I ever tried accepting the fact that I had gender dysphoria? And I had never had that moment before. I always fought against it. Like I can get it away. I tried praying it away, wishing it away. Um, Even during medical school, I was uh, researching all the things that I could to try to figure out how to get this to go away. That's part of the reason why I went into medical school was maybe I could find some answer this way. And as soon as I said, no, maybe I should try accepting it. The next thought that came into my mind was, um, you need to tell Laura and you need to tell her right now. Wow. And it was a very, very powerful experience. I, I don't think I would have ever mustered up the courage to do it on my own. And so I went and found Laura and we sat down and talked. 
And uh, she, she'll definitely remember the experience as I was shaking a lot. Yeah. I was so scared. She, she was shaking. <laughs> um, and Laura, you, you, you told your side of the story a little bit too um, with that. Um, she started out the conversation was I was thinking about my childhood and before she said anything, she said, I don't want to do anything to hurt the family and I want to keep the commandments. I'm like, okay, where is this going? And she asked me if I knew about gender dysphoria. And I said, yes. And so she says, for as long as I can remember, I've always wanted, wished I was a girl. And um, I remember just asking clarifying questions and and um, just most, the feeling I had at that moment was just this compassion, like my heart hurting for her that she had gone through this and uh, I wanted to be there for her. Um, uh, and I can tell she was just so relieved to have that out. Cause I remember that night as we, you know, went and went to bed, she just clung to me like super tight. Just, she was just like, as if I was a lifeline and, uh, it wasn't until like the next day that the realities kind of hit me of, Oh my gosh, what is going on? Um, I made the mistake of Googling gender dysphoria and it, <laughs> it left the impression of trans, well, transitioning was the only option and uh, that any romantic relationships end up becoming friendships. I'm like, what is happening? You know, cause uh, the mo- most important thing in my life was being sealed to Chris and um uh, having that eternal marriage was just foundational to me. So I'm like, what, you know, what am I going to do? What, what? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that would, that turned my world upside down, but, uh, what helped us because, um, I, people ask like, how can you stay married, um, with all this is, well, first of all, um, Chris put, we're putting our relationship first before anything else. And um, so any sort of exploration of, okay, is there anything feminine that's okay, morally okay for me to do? Because it it was a gradual, yeah, we didn't just, she didn't just transition right away. It was, what, good eight years? Uh, uh, Because the idea was that she would explore the feminine side of her, but not transition. And, um, and that anything that she would do, we decide together and whatever I was comfortable with. And so over time, you know, it's just, it was just a very gradual evolution um, of what I was okay with. And um, that made all the difference in the world was that you were so considerate of how I felt. Um, I think our lifeline for us was communication. Oh yeah, very much so. We, we kept it open talking and just helping us each of each other understand each other. And I yeah. think that really made the world a difference. Yeah. So putting our, our relationship first and then really talking about it. Yeah. Um, it, the other thing that was our lifeline was the gospel. Yeah, it was. Um, and understanding the power of personal revelation, because there wasn't this textbook of here's what you do. We the instruction manual. Here's how you handle this. And here's what's the morally right thing to do. Because it was, um, at the time especially, the handbook was very brief about 
anything like this. The only thing it really said at the time was just don't have surgery. Um, and then that one little sentence that's in the family proclamation about gender and that was it. And we're like, what do we do? <laughs> what's right? What's wrong? How do we make this work? And we want to do what's right in the Lord's eyes. And so we had to heavily rely on, on the spirit. And, and, and I remember many times, um, especially if something was, I like, especially there was times where she would, um, you know, get into a dress, just especially when the gender dysphoria was really feeling strong and just, uh, that was like re uh, really relieving for her. She said it was like, well, you said it was like taking off your nylons at the end of the day or like taking off shoes. We go, oh, all that stress and that buildup and that tension just, <laughs> that's what it felt like to her to finally like wear women's clothing. And I remember thinking, oh, is this right? Are we doing the right thing? And I remember praying about it and the feelings that I would get numerous times was let her take care of herself. She needs to take care of herself. And so I'm like, okay, all right, I'll, I'll okay, <laughs> let that go. Um, uh, but yeah, where was I going? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then as you we fast forward um, with, uh, oh yeah, she decided wanting to try hormones uh, for the sake of um, helping alleviate. Symptoms. You want to talk about that part? Yeah. Um, as I, we wandered into this experience, as, as Laura said, I, we really wanted to try to feel out from the spirit, how do we best approach this? And there wasn't any one right answer that we were looking for. It was literally, we were listening to the spirit as we went and um with the goal and mindset of just helping each other. That's why this communication was so important. It was us together and also working with the Lord of how best to approach this. And I know for everybody's experience, this is completely different than a lot of other experiences. Our relationship, yes, is unique. And this is not the answer for everybody. I realize that. Um, <clears throat> there was um, one moment that um, as we moved into Spokane, Washington, that we wanted to, I wanted to try hormone therapy. I wanted to see if that helped along with this whole, you know, cross-dressing, if you will, and helping with this experience. And it was a night and day experience for me. And just starting hormone therapy was incredible. Going from this incredible stressful experience of having gender dysphoria to having uh, emotions again. So one of the things I did with my gender dysphoria is I locked in all these emotions. I didn't allow myself to be happy. I didn't allow myself to be sad. I put myself into a static mode of just constant emotion. That's what my goal was, to not stray from that one bit. And when I started hormone therapy, I could actually feel the walls of that desire to maintain balance, to allow myself to feel again was incredible. Um, so yeah, I started hormone therapy and one of the challenges with uh, hormone therapy is there's physical changes that come along for the ride. Can I interject for just yeah. a moment? Um, what I observed from her when she started the hormone therapy is like she woke up. Um, she was finally able to be mentally present. You described it as instead of a war in your head, it was, they could, your, those two sides, you can more amicably coincide 
And yeah, so she was able to be more present as a parent, um, present as a spouse, um, and just be a lot happier. And I was like, wow, this <laughs> this made a difference. Yeah, it made a difference. And um, the scientifically, I think it's because you had these receptors in your brain that is, was starving for estrogen, but yet your body didn't create nearly enough for for yeah to be a balance. Yeah. So, so go on. <laughs> yeah, no. So at work, what I um, ended up having to do was um, our dress policy at work allowed for business casual versus just wearing scrubs, and uh, because scrubs were gender neutral. Um, I wore scrubs all the time. Um, that was kind of my um, calling card, my mark, if you will. Still your signature look. It is still my signature look. <laughs> um, but the reason being is because it, it helped hide physical changes. And um, there was a few times at work where um, I, still, I still laugh at this experience. One of the nurses came up to me and said, Dr. Coons, you really should get your hormones checked. <laughs> And I smiled and in my mind, I'm like, oh, thank you. And I'm thinking about this, I'm like, I do regularly get my hormones changed. There was another experience where um, I was working in the emergency room and one of the nurses I knew very well just, you know, was standing next to me and, you know, gently put her hand on my back right where the, uh, you'd expect a strap to be. And she's like, are you, are you not wearing a bra sort of thing? I'm like, well, I know what you're trying to do. I'm not going to say anything. Um, let that pass. But it was like, okay, I can understand where this is starting to lead now that the, the changes and things like that are becoming more and more apparent, even despite my efforts of trying to hide them. And um, as we, oh, you know, it was one of those things as uh, we had these experiences Laura needed more support from talking and opening up to a lot of different people too. Yeah. And so as we started breaking out and opening up with family. Yeah. And one by one, it was like when it felt, when the time felt right, we would like uh, talk to a family member about it. Like first it was my sister and then my parents and just one by one, when it felt like the right time, we would yeah. kind of expand our, our circle of support of the people who knew. And every time that we opened up that circle of support, it was amazing because Everybody was supportive. They were understanding and compassionate and willing to listen. And it was remarkable. I, I sincerely appreciate all the people that I have interacted with as time has gone on. Yeah, because I know some other people that was not their experience where they had a, they were met with very negative reactions. And it, my heart breaks for them for that. Yeah. One of the remarkable experiences I had as um, maybe this is what partially led to transitioning was I did have one patient that um, in the morning, usually what I do is I get my list of patients and I review their charts. And as I reviewed this patient's chart, I realized that they had been on hormone, uh, cross-hormone therapy at one point in their life. So in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, hey, I need to be aware of this person's pronouns, um, their gender expression and things like that. And as I went and go talk to this patient, um, it was relatively dark. It was in the morning and it was, they were there for a very simple reason, actually to be honest, not really that big of a deal. And as I finished the conversation with them about their healthcare, they turned to me and said, Hey, can I talk to a case manager? And I said, well, sure. Um, because we have case managers and social workers, I wasn't sure who they needed. So is there something that I can 
take to them and help you with the situation? And they said, yes, I'm being sex trafficked. Wow. And here I am kind of kneeling to the side of the bed. I was pulled over. Not only was this person experiencing gender dysphoria, but they were in a situation, they were essentially captured and in a sex trafficking situation where the person do, doing this was manipulating them. They told them that their mother had passed away and they felt trapped and isolated, that they could not escape. And of course, we helped this person. We helped them escape. Um, we found out that their parents were very much alive and we got them reconnected to them. And it was a very powerful experience to me <clears throat> realizing that there's these individuals out there that don't have a voice, that they are trapped, they feel isolated, um, they're maybe in potential situations like this. And here I am hiding from the rest of the world with gender dysphoria. And then you have such a lot, you had such a large network of support and the ability to have a voice. Yeah. yeah. So I, I found that I needed to step up because I could have a voice. And so I use that experience as a motivation for me to say, I need to speak up. I can speak up. I'm a physician. I can speak to a lot of these things. I understand genetics. I understand a lot more, or I have access to a lot of these research articles and medical information that a lot of people don't have. And so I've been using that to kind of teach and educate, work with those who are around me. And as I went through this discovery process, yes, I did eventually transition. Um, and I did have to go through a period of depression and, you know, suicidal ideation. Um, but before that, um, after this experience with that patient, that's when you decided to actually come out to the world about your gender dysphoria. That's true where you were going to tell everybody about it, but not transition yet. And so that's when uh, we, well, then you felt impressed to talk with your parents because yeah. you hadn't talked with your parents yet. That was a miracle in itself. That, uh, she thought that she would never be able to talk with her parents about it, but amazingly they're, they're wonderful. They're, they, they've been very supportive and we're very grateful for that. But sorry, I'm getting on a tangent. Um, but yeah, we, we um, came out to even our church community, to the public. Uh, we just went on social media and said, this is what's, what's going on. This is what's going on. And um, it, it was interesting. It was a mixed reaction overall. Lots and lots of positive things. And then a lot of silence. There was ne wasn't necessarily any negative we didn't really run into any negative things until after she transitioned, but it was mostly kind of uncomfortable silence. Like oh, I think it's just people didn't know, quite know what to do or what to say or what to make of it. And they're like, uh, okay. <laughs> so, you know, Hey, if you're not used to it and you don't know what to do, you know, I, I don't blame them for that, but things got better. after. This. Yeah. And so that went on for a few months. And then, sorry, and then now, now we're back to, now we're back to where you are. So I actually started looking into my own genetics and did some genetic testing. So I ended up transitioning 
and uh, did my own genetic testing and found out that I have a congenital condition called uh, congenital uh, hypogonadotropic hypogonadism. Say that again. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, it's CHH for short. <laughs> <laughs> and um, usually what I end up doing to tell people about it is it's similar to Kalman syndrome. Uh, Kalman's is K-A-L-L-M-A-N-S. Um, but Kalman's individuals um, lack the ability to smell. And I can smell. And really what this does is actually a problem with the pituitary gland. And during gestational development, um, my pituitary decided to do weird things. And um, it was a remarkable experience to actually how I figured that out. It took me a few months because I got the the genetic marker to to say what it was. Um, But I wanted background and support on it. I needed to actually have evidence to support this diagnosis. And uh, so I ran into a whole bunch of journal articles um, that were actually relatively recent. And as I looked back throughout my entire life, I can see this influence, spiritual influence of all these times of growing up and experience that I can feel this touch of the spirit just saying, hey, here's this additional step. Here's this initial, here's the answers that you're looking for. All growing up, I always you know, found myself praying. I wanted answers. I wanted to understand. And as I work on this now, I am getting more understanding. I am seeing more answers. Did you want to explain kind of why it gave you gender dysphoria? Uh, I can do that a little okay. later. Yeah. <laughs> but what I found is empowering with that is taking that information to other people and then having them come to me with their genetic work and say, what does this mean? So I've been actually helpful with a lot of other individuals with understanding their genetics as well and trying to understand why they have gender dysphoria. So it's been this really incredible journey of connecting with people who have gender dysphoria, who later on in life realize that they have a disorder or a difference of sexual development or in an intersex condition. And it's been very helpful to me to understand that but it also has become a powerful tool of teaching, helping people understand that there's more to this, that it's more complex than we think it really is. And yeah. So going back to the ward and the stake, I wanted to share a couple of experiences with uh, people in our ward and stake. After transitioning, it was kind of a little bit of a bumpy road. There was um, people who kind of stepped away, some people who were willing to listen and understand. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, I have an amazing bishop, an amazing state president. Yeah, it, yeah, it mostly, it, it, vast majority of people, if they were disagreeing with you, they mostly just stayed quiet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like we had a couple of people try and like, give you a come to Jesus talk saying you're making the devil happy or, you know, um, you're just not, you know, praying right. Or, you know, or just <laughs> some people who had no business making comments about, <laughs> about it. And, uh, yeah. Uh, but overall it was more kind of a, <laughs> a neutral at first. People didn't quite know what to say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> The bishop did let you immediately, it did let you attend Relief Society. Mm-hmm. On the whole, most people were fine with it. Um, we did hear 
indirectly that um, there are a few people that were not okay with it. They feelings that they were challenged their faith that the bishop let Christine attend Relief Society. Um, and so the bishop was working with those people. Pretty much he, he just pointed them to the, the handbook, which the, by then the handbook had updated saying with these individuals, you know, they, sh- they should be able to participate, you know, let them, you know, participate in church. And yeah. Some of the other cool experiences I had, I, I, I'm actually the ward organist. And so I'm up front pretty much every other week um, playing the organ. And uh, Laura actually plays the piano for primary, and we've we've been known to kind of switch between the the two depending on the day. And there was one day where um, we were switching kind of partway through primary, and so I actually went in, sat down against the wall, and uh, just kind of watched you know the the whole primary uh, do their thing, singing songs and things like that. And I really didn't want to interrupt too much. And um, what was really cute was um, they started singing uh, Follow the Prophet. And for our primary at that time, they got up and they marched around the room. And it was really Like all the little kids. All the little kids marching along. And as they were doing it, one of the primary teachers pointed to me and said, hey, come on over, come on over and participate. Just march with us. And... For me, it was one of those like, you know, I, I realized that a lot of people's experience, especially with a transgender person participating with children, I wanted to be mindful and careful of that. But it was one of those where I was like, you know what, I'm in a group of people. There's a lot of adults. There's a lot of children. You know what, I'm going to participate just to show that, you know, even adults can have fun with doing this. And, you know, so I, I marched around the room with them. And it was one of the sweetest experiences to have this primary uh, teacher just come along and say, Hey, just march with us. And I, I look back at that experience as one of the sweetest experiences I've, I've, I've ever had because of that. Um, There's a lot of just things like that, that maybe to that person seemed like a small gesture, but meant the world to you, like going into society and somebody coming over and saying hi and sitting with you. I could just, yeah. yeah, it just just feeling like you belong. It right. it made the biggest difference. Or being able to uh, make comments in class. Oh, I love making comments, and a lot of people just come up and say thank you for making those comments. I've had the Relief Society president, you know, say, "Hey, Christine, would you offer the prayer?" Um, it's it's been a wonderful experience just to say have these individuals just say, "You're welcome here. You're willing. We're willing to participate." I think a lot of it has to do with this over time developing trust between what they feel comfortable with and how I approach the situation. Mm-hmm. And, and it did take a little bit of time. I remember the very first time you went into Relief Society, I went with her. It was scary. We were both scared. <laughs> and um, there wasn't necessarily anything negative happened, but not necessarily anything positive. It's like we sat there, not really anybody talked with Christine. One of our friends kind of, who didn't really know the story, just kind of gave us kind of confused look like why are you here? <laughs> yeah. What's going on? but then it was like okay and but that was it but it, you know even though so it was awkward but not disastrous <laughs> but then over time they warmed up and everything and um yeah it it took a lot of bravery to do that because we didn't know how people would react um i don't know maybe they did say something behind her back i don't know 
By the way, that's not my business. That's theirs. <laughs> Let's see. What other experiences can I share? I for work. Um. So from a ward and stake perspective, they've been amazing. And as I transitioned at work, this was also a scary experience because I interact with hundreds of people on a monthly basis. So I work in a hospital. I'm a hospitalist. I take care of sick adults inside the hospital. And when I transitioned, I was very, also very surprised at how well I was accepted uh, from a work perspective. Um, I got an email even directly from the CEO saying, we welcome Christine Coons as um, a physician here. Um, and I've had to talk with all the nurses. I work with dozens and dozens of work nurses every single day and tons of patients regularly. And it's wonderful. They, they look at me as a, their doctor, that I am willing to listen and care for them. And I've had so many people reach out and say, thank you for taking care of my loved one and family members. And it's just been a very delightful experience. Yes, there's been bumps along the way. There have been some people that have been rude. But to be honest, those experiences have been very few and far between. Mm -hmm. And it helps that um, your her employer it has her back. So those few times where there was like a patient that was really rude and disrespectful, um, they had her back. Like they're like, okay, we'll take over this patient. and. Um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'm glad for that. I really am glad for that. Um, yeah. Is, is there other things that you wanted us to had questions for us? Um, this is just really a good podcast. And um, this is where <laughs> I say a prayer that I'm asking questions that listeners have in their mind right now. Um, talk, uh, about, I was looking at, talk about sorry. Um, the, the, and I want to link in the show notes, listeners, to the diagnosis you have through your genetic um, research, cognitive, hypo. Can you say that again, Dr. Coons? Yeah, I'll say it again. Just say Con Coleman syndrome. Congenital, congenital hypogonadotropic hypogonadism, so CHH for short. We'll link to that uh, we in the show notes. So if you want to learn more about that, there'll be a link. But talk about why that led to, why that diagnosis or that condition leads to or is correlated with general gender gender dysphoria however you want to frame that so there's a lot of medical conditions that lead to um variations in sexual development um in medical school uh we usually list off about somewhere about 50 to 60 medical conditions that can lead to these variations and this happens to be one of them. And the way this works is there are, I, I guess the way to describe it is different centers of our sexual development. Um, we look at the, the gonads, it's a primary one. The adrenal glands participate as well. But the pituitary gland is kind of this control center. It sits right behind um, our eyes, uh, behind our nose. Um, the pituitary gland is this control center that uh, helps regulate uh, menstrual cycles. Um, it helps uh, with the start of puberty as well. And people who have this condition, condition of uh, Kalman syndrome or CHH, what happens during gestation is that the cells that are supposed to transport their way up to the pituitary gland don't quite make it. And these same cells are also responsible for um, transporting uh, the, the the cells for uh, smell. 
And so sometimes those may not make it, sometimes they will. So a lot of times these conditions, uh, people don't, uh, they lack the ability to smell. The, the people who lack the ability to smell is called Kalman syndrome, uh, K-A-L-L-M-A-N-S. And these individuals can have delayed puberty um, or no puberty at all. Um, there are times when this can cause a complete sex reversal. Either way, it's one of those where the development is different than what you would typically expect. From what I understand, at least from, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the signal that needs to, during gestation, the signal needs to reach the pituitary gland that, that will then trigger the brain to develop as male or female. That signal got interrupted. Yeah, so in terms so, of timing of when gestation so gestational sex and brain sex develop roughly approximating each other. They're usually about the fifth and sixth weeks of gestation. And as our sexual development starts, um, there is a surge of hormones that influences brain development. And if there is an interruption in that process, the uh, influence of those hormones on the brain are interrupted as well. So the structures that are associated with um, our sexual identity are um, interrupted. And as a consequence of that, um, people who have these disorders of sexual development are more likely to have gender dysphoria. Um, not everyone will experience gender dysphoria with that. And you'll see that with people who have intersex conditions is that some people do, some people don't. It really is a lot to do with just this wide variation of who we are as human beings is it's just that is we're kind of a variation on the theme. Yeah. Cause uh, the more I learned from Chris is um, so much factors go into our development as a fetus or as an embryo um, with, um, with defining uh, developing the, our sex, that there's many different factors at play. There's many different genes at play. And it's much, much more complicated than just simply XX and XY. There's a, a lot of players going on. <laughs> and uh, so that means there's a lot of potential in any of those pathways to get interrupted or to be different in some way. Um, and so there's the, as you said, there's a great diversity in What's really cool is a lot of the stuff that I'm seeing, a lot of these genetic um, understanding is relatively new within the past 15 to 20 years. Um, one of the great websites that I have used to help understand this is uh, gene, G-E-N-E.io, it's I-O-B-I-O um, dot I-O, is a, um, a genetic repository is like a huge database and what people can do is submit their dna to this uh, website and have this uh, website analyze their dna that you can get compared get compared to all these variations and that's what i ended up doing and as i found out with a lot of this that there's dozens and dozens of genes involved in our development it's not just xy it's not just xx um, those are kind of the starting point, but it's a cascade of events. It's like a series of dominoes, if you will. If you just kind of tip one domino, it's just this big, huge array of things that happen 
afterwards that is so incredibly beautiful and complex that um, I am really appreciating more and more the incredible diversity of just humankind. Watching these differences materialize and then looking at other cultures and other races and going, these people are incredible because of who they are because of their genetics, because of their culture, because of their diversity. And I'm looking at people with gender dysphoria and realizing that these people are just as incredible and beautiful as other people as well. <laughs> That's very helpful. Um, just some comments, listeners, and I've got some more questions. Um, this is like a beautiful love story. Um, <laughs> and um, I'm so glad both of you are on this podcast and have taken time during your 20th anniversary. I was. Um, Christine's your words when you came out to Laura, I don't want to hurt the family and I want to keep the commandments. This is just all out of love. And then you're the first reaction you felt from Laura, your wife, is compassion and a lifeline. And you just held her that night. And then you're right, Laura woke up and Googled and sort of tried to process the reality of this. And I think that's okay. Uh, then you talked about your lifeline. My li our lifeline for our marriage is communication. And this is, you know, marriages can survive difficult things that come into marriage. I don't say this is a, it's just a, it's just the reality of who you are. Um, it's not a bad thing. I don't want to say it's a bad thing or a difficult thing, but communication seems to be a key part of the formula is, yeah, we still have the same common goals. We love each other. We want to be married to each other. We want to raise the kids want to stay in the church. So once you kind of remember that that foundation's there, then you can, then you can have yeah. the honest conversations. I wrote down. What is all, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I just, uh, I guess I want to clarify if any, like if there's any listeners out there, they're like, Hey, my spouse came out as transgender and it didn't work out for us. I don't want to make them think that like they failed in any way because it also takes just the right type of personality to be able to switch like this uh, and True. stay in the, a marriage. Um, it helps that uh, there is a part of me that is bisexual. Um, growing up, I would occasionally find myself attracted to a woman and it scared me to death. And mm -hmm. so I just squashed it, but I'm mostly attracted to men. Um, and so um, having to, it's funny because, you know, growing up, I couldn't imagine have ever, telling people about this because I didn't, wouldn't even tell it to myself. Um, but that has helped, um, having that small part of me kind of tapping that part of me has made it also possible. And even then there has been times where it just seemed like we've each had these really important emotional needs that seemed incompatible. Um, but you know, the, the, from direction from the spirit and what we want, it, it's for us, it made sense and it was the right thing for us to stay together. And it helps that, you know, she's my soulmate, you know, we're just soulmate. We're meant to be together. So it's like, we asked, it's like, would we be happier apart? I'm like, no, just the thought of it's great. separating just fills me with horror. I'm like, no, I don't want to lose you. <laughs> so, so, but, so it's not like it's been easy. And, um, and I do completely understand if for some married couples, it just doesn't work out because there is definite legitimate emotional needs with the spouse because gender does matter in a marriage. 
No, I just wanted to clarify that. <laughs> Thank you, Laura, for being brave about just being bisexual and opening up about that as part of your journey. Respect and um, and it's just part of your beautiful uh, love story that your marriage is, and you're completely authentic and open and transparent. And I think that's um, really important in a marriage. And I love the grace you give to other marriages where somebody does um, come out as trans. It's not like all marriages can work. This is just our Mm -hmm. story. And that's sort of a pillar of this podcast is we're sharing lots of stories, but you got to write your own story listeners. If you're walking this space um, and hopefully these stories give you better insights on how to do that. I wrote down, I was looking at go ahead. Sorry, I was looking at Chris's notes about um what we've been doing to kind of help build bridges. And uh the other year we kind of had a family meeting because uh my stepbrother is um in a gay marriage. Uh we love we love him and his husband. They're really close to us. Actually, they're the ones taking care of our kids while we're gone. <laughs> um but we were talking about the need to create bridges between religious groups and the LGBT community, because so often in the world, we think of it as like warring enemies and it doesn't need to be that way. Um, And so how do we build those bridges and create understanding? Um, And one of the ways we've been doing this is giving people grace, um, especially at church, um, because there's very, um, I've grown, we've both grown a lot. I've grown in my understanding and in uh, being an ally. Um, and so I should give people that room to grow too. Most people have good intentions. A lot of times it just comes from their past, the way they've been, they've been raised and the way they're thinking uh, or just a lack of understanding. And to be patient with people to not treat them as bad people if they don't understand or aren't as tolerant as we'd like them to be. I mean, admittedly, sometimes it does hurt, but uh, don't write them off as bad people. That's, that's not the way the savior would do that. I love that. Talk about before we went live, um, Christine, you talked about really dark days. In fact, days that you were suicidal. Um, Share that if you'd like to, because I think, other people may be walking this road of suicidal ideation and wondering if it ever gets better. And you were certainly in that really dark spot one day. So, or for a period of time, share whatever you'd like to share that I think, because I think this would be helpful for listeners. I, as I walked this journey of slowly opening up to different people, I realized that I felt like I was stuck between a rock and a hard place. What could I do? What could I say? What could I wear? What could I interact with? Who knew? Who didn't know? And I felt like myself, again, starting to warn my head about what I could do and what I couldn't do. I kind of started creating this list of all the things that, you know, should, shouldn't say, shouldn't do, you know, things like that. And over time, it became very depressing. And I did share with people about how it felt with being depressed. And it honestly felt like I was wearing chains walking through molasses. Every step, every step forward got worse and worse and heavier and heavier and heavier. And it finally got to the point where I 
did want to take my life. And uh, one morning, um, I decided that, you know, maybe this is the day I wanted to do this. So I woke up that morning. It was actually a work day. And I lay down in the closet on the floor and I just lay there for a while. Um, I have had multiple hip surgeries, so I had access to pain medications and they were relatively close by. And in my mind, all I had to do was just take these medications and all this pain would disappear. Um, <clears throat> as I lay there though, my next stop was, you know, I, I had this obligation that I needed to go to work. And oftentimes what happens if, you know, you're late for work, especially as a physician, they come, you know, trying to help you out and look, you know, there's, there's something wrong. And so I realized that I needed to get up and get, get to work. Um, there was people that needed me. And so I did get up, <clears throat> went to work and took care of my patients. And as I took care of these patients, I realized that my family was a part of this caring group as well. And so I finished my day and as I walked out to the car, I, um, I broke down crying. I realized that I, I needed help and I couldn't do this on my own. And so I reached out to the suicide hotline and I was grateful I did. Um, I was grateful for the words they said. And the next thing I did is I went home and talked to Laura and shared the experience, shared what was going on, and that we needed to figure out how I, I needed to get help. And so I did. I went to my primary care doctor, got help with some medications, talked to my uh, um, psychologist, and realized that there was so much more that I, you know, I had to give. And that was helpful to me. That was helpful that I reached out, that I took that step. And it is a brave step to do that. A lot of people feel that they're trapped and they don't have an out. There is, there is people willing and able to step up and reach out and raise you up. And that's... Um, the big motivator with fully tra socially transitioning um, was from that. Was from that experience. And you're so much, Christine is so much happier now, finally able to be herself. And I think you said the day after you decided, okay, I'm going to fully, I'm going to be thinking of myself as a female now. I remember you saying the next day you came out. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, I do remember that experience. Yeah. So I, I, the day after I, uh, we decided that, yes, I was going to transition. I remember waking up and walking into the living room and in my mind, I, I thought to myself, where's the noise? Where's this massive conflict that's been going on for decades, going back to my childhood of gender dysphoria. And I wasn't naive enough to say that this would completely disappear, but I realized that moment that I was Yes, this was the right decision moving forward. Yeah, your brain was finally quiet. <laughs> my, my brain was quiet for once in my entire life, you know, accepting myself as female. And then also, ultimately, later on, um, you know, about six, seven months later, finding out that, no, there was actually a congenital, a, geni a genetic cause for this as well, was truly remarkable to me. Um, and so... 
uplifting. I feel myself. I feel like I can have emotions again. Um, there are times when I cry. There's times where I just feel just this bliss and happiness. Yes, there's good times. There's bad times. But overall, I love interacting with my family. I love interacting with the world. I love interacting with the ward. I just, I see life. That was a beautiful segment. Um, I personally am so moved just hearing that. And thank you for being vulnerable. Um, you know, we've had a few docs on the podcast, including a doctor in our ward. He's CIS, but he was open about his own suicidal ideation. And I'm aware of some of the research that sometimes it's hard, docs and maybe people that are supposed to have it all together. It's harder for them to get help. Um, and you're nodding your head. So maybe there's some truth to that. But here you are, you know, going to the office, you're, you're an inter doctor of internal medicine, blessing a bunch of people's lives. And you're on the closet you know, thinking about paying in the closet, thinking about not literally or figuratively, but anyway, um, in a really dark spot with access to pain meds. And I just um, love that you model personally about, I am strong enough to call the suicide hotline. That's not a sign of weakness. That's a sign of strength. And I am strong enough to talk to Laura, my wife, about my suicidal ideation because I want to get through this and I actually want to live and I want to find peace and hope in my life. And I just think that's a beautiful part of your love story and um, maybe some of your finest moments as a couple. Mm -hmm. And you personally, Christine, is having the guts to call as, you know, a doc and go to your own doc and go to the different people you needed to go to and how that role models for all of us that really good um, people um, need help at times, and it's not a it's not a weakness. It's it's just the reality of mortality. Um, and then you have this incredibly credible life as part of your story, um, Christine. Because everything you've done is you've got a track record of just success. Um, going to BYU and getting in in the first place, serving a mission, finding your wife Laura, getting on to med school, being chief resident. Um, having a practice now and um, it gives credibility to other trans people. And I think it's one of the, th and I hopefully we don't need to do that eventually listeners is that we just believe trans people because they deserve to believe uh, believed. And we just honor their gender expression and honor their pronouns. They don't have to prove it to us. They don't have to have a big um, long story of gender dysphoria. We just as grace honor their gender expression doesn't cost me anything to do that to use the pronouns you prefer and um yeah. and here's laura your wife who's probably the best qualified maybe you are christine to talk about your own story but here's laura your wife who's been with you 20 years and fell in love with you at byu um talking about how much happier you are transitioning and the calming of your brain and who what a beautiful part of this story is Laura, who knows you best. So this is part of, you know, what we're trying to do in this podcast is the trap of unearned opinions. I talk a lot about is let's don't develop opinions about trans people or until we talk to trans people. Elder Uchtdorf talks about um, how often have, have we tried to get the past the massive iron gates of what we thought we already knew. Um, so this is an effort to get past the massive iron gates and me personally. Um, to do this and 
and us in general is to is to better support trans Latter Day Saints and trans people in our families and community. And um, part of the gathering of Israel, I believe, is I've talked about this as people looking to join our church and. Um, but also members within our church, you're Israel, Christine, and you need to be gathered. And you need to feel welcome in Release Society. That's not against church teachings to attend Release Society. It's not against church teachings for us to use your preferred pronoun. Some of the things that you, you know, are. And so the handbook is pretty um, straightforward and you're doing a good job communicating with your leaders and what you can or can't do. But what we do as a rank and file member, I think, is just love you and support you and honor your pronouns and be curious about your story. Ask questions, appropriate questions, and some have done that. Um, so this is just so helpful. Um, I used to, listeners, used to think, well, this is just Satan deceiving his children at the last days, and this is all prophesied. And that kept me in my nice, tidy um, box of emotional safety and everything I didn't understand, I just sort of chalked up to that. And yeah, I believe mm-hmm. Satan's real, and but I don't think he. This is something he's caused within you. There's a there's a biological or a genetic, whatever the right words are, scientific understanding of what you why you felt this. And I think science is our friends, listeners. And um, one of your gifts to this space is your your medical background and your wonderful brain that's wired understand the complexities of this space and genetics and learning your own story. But as I believe, listeners, that at some point in the future, you know, this science will help us understand why people feel long-term gender dysphoria. And I think we'll all go back and I get really emotional and say, I wish I were kinder to trans people because now I understand and I have compassion and empathy and I just didn't understand. I feel yeah. the same way. So, I look back on some of the things I've said in the past. My oh, oh dear, I I was so ignorant. And so uh, same here. And um, mm-hmm. I talk about sometimes. I don't want to talk too much, but I talk about Catherine Schweitzer when I try to introduce this subject to LDS audiences. And she's not a trans woman. She's just a cis woman that ran the Boston Marathon in the 1960s. But the assumption in that day is women were too frail to run marathons. And so the race officials ran after her and ripped off her number. And I show a picture of that. And I show a picture 50 years later, Catherine Schweitzer finishing the same marathon with the same number. And no one thought twice 50 years later about women running marathons. But what has changed? We understand the science. Women are not too frail to run marathons. And we have firsthand mm-hmm. experience. We know people in our lives that run that are women and run marathons, and and we're getting to know more people that are trans. But God always knew Catherine Schweitzer and all women could run marathons, and so I think God has always known, you know, some of His wonderful children experience gender dysphoria, and He probably understands the genetics and the science and exactly why you felt this way, and it's not a surprise to Him. I'm conjecturing how Heavenly Father feels, so that's maybe not okay. But I just think we err on the side of grace and listening, understanding, and inclusion. And we think, what can we do to help people feel involved? Um, talk, I've got a question for Laura. Some would say, you know, when a spouse comes out as queer or LGBTQ or trans, well, this isn't what I signed up for. Wait a second, this isn't fair. I signed up for a straight cis spouse. and 
Um, I hope that's not a triggering question for Christine. I, um, she's nodding her head no, but it's a tender question, and you've navigated that. And some people um, maybe, and it's your answer probably scales to people that maybe somebody gets cancer and they go, well, this isn't what I signed up for. My spouse has pancreatic cancer and is dying prematurely. So marriage is choppy. <laughs> and so this isn't what I signed up for as an umbrella for lots of things, but you could address it from the context of, you know, my spouse isn't cis. Yeah. Well, one thing that helped me um, um, in my, my patriarchal blessing promises that I would know from the spirit the right person to marry. And that was definitely true. Um, I knew without a doubt that she was the right one to marry. And I knew that we were meant to be sealed. And that, I mean, I was always grateful for that promise. And, but I didn't realize just how much I needed that promise until she came out to me. Cause then my question was, well, are we meant to be together? Are, were we meant, are we allowed, are we able to be sealed together? Um, and that those promises came back to me and, and those memories of, of what the spirit told me. And that has been my anchor. And, you know, one thing you just learned over the course of 20 years of marriage is um, marriage, you can count on change. That there's, there, you, you we get these ideas in our head of what we want it to be like, but life loves take twists and turns and that's okay. That's the way it's meant to be. Life is all about change and it can be wonderful. It can be scary and it can be very uncomfortable, but it doesn't necessarily mean that something's wrong if things are changing. And um, that's one thing I've learned about myself is being able, how much I'm able to cope. I'm able to handle change because um, this <laughs> it has been all about change. <laughs> so, and so if uh, last year when she first said to, hey, I'm going to be fully transition, I'm going to fully transition. Emotionally, that was really hard for me. I had to mourn. I went through a mourning period, having to say goodbye, let go of that past idea of, what I thought Chris was uh, or who I thought Chris, or yeah, it's hard to put into words. <laughs> um, but yes, it's a very normal thing for close family members, for somebody who transitions to go through a mourning, a grieving period. And I think that's true with any time there's a major change in life that you were not expecting. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that they died because I still have her and she's still essentially the same person. Uh, it's just that, change in expectations in their vision. Um, but I come now I'm out on this other end stronger and uh, I'm realizing, okay, I, I can handle changes. I, you know, we can, we can do it. <laughs> One of the things I, I've, I've tried to make sure I tell people as well is I, I look back at my past as I was learning and growing as well. So I, I've actually been okay talking about my past experiences um, and who I was back then. Um, so I, I do talk about, you know, gender dysphoria, my, my experience growing up. I talk about my relationships with my family and, you know, things that have happened in my life um, before transitioning. Um, I look at it differently now, being where I'm at now. But yeah, I, I don't mind talking about my past experiences because they helped me to be where I'm at right now. I love that. I just, you can handle hard questions. Um, I love 
you know, Laura, you're, you talk about my lifeline. Both of you have said this. My lifeline is the gospel. And here you go, turning to your patriarchal blessing um, when this and finding words there that helped you. And it's just a pattern that both of you have of turning to prayer, turning to the gospel, turning to patriarchal blessings, turning to principles. And this is kind of a beautiful, I keep going back to this phrase, a beautiful love story of just how you navigate the complexities of life. And life is complex. And, um, but I thought that was really terrific. And listeners, I, you know, I go on the long walks in the morning. That's kind of my mental prayer time. And I think about, I do these checklists of, I try to go back a hundred years or 200 years or 500 years and, and think of all the things that we had fear about that now we don't have fear about. And I was thinking about mixed race marriages. And um, there was a study I read that one author felt mixed race marriages, blacks and whites getting married would end the human race. Um, and he wanted to do a study. If you put blacks and whites on an island, of eventually um, human population would die out. And there was no science behind that. It was just um, a feeling of the day, and people adopted that. It was fear. And now we know that mixed-race marriages don't cause any problems. And our church has changed on that topic. We There's lots of people in mixed-race marriages that fully participate in the church, and we don't have fear about that generally. So I kind of go through all these things in my mind, like the Salem witch trials, and um, we had fear around a group of people that were a little different. So we assumed they were witches, and we burned some of them at the stake. And, you know, I go back and I think to myself, what would I have done if I lived in Salem, Massachusetts? Would I have been part of the group driven by fear that burned witches? And I don't know the answer to that, to be honest. Um, but I do hope that I would, and so here we are talking about trans people and there's a lot of political vitriol around trans people and, um, they're a threat to children, as you mentioned earlier, and the trans people I've met, that's just unfair. And to label a whole group with that court of vitriol can drum up fear and maybe generate votes, but it's not Christ's way. And it's not consistent with, I think, the gospel or what our leaders are inviting us to do. On the church's website about trans people, Elder Rasman has a very kind comment. Um, he doesn't dismiss the reality of gender dysphoria in his comment. He talks about love and support and kindness. So the church's website is very kind. Yeah, there's handbook restrictions and there's sort of, you know, you know that well. Um, so that's just sort of my journey as a boring old straight white cis guy trying to make make sense of things that I don't understand and trying to do the right thing. And then looking at the scriptures and saying, you know, do it unto the least of these you're doing unto me. And I don't think of you as the least of these, Christine, um, because of what you do professionally and who you are, but society sometimes casts you in that light. And so I'm looking for people that society casts in an inappropriate negative way and think, what can I do? following the example of Jesus Christ to be kind and lift and support and understand. And I love the people in your family you're talking about, your professional circle, Christine, um, your ward that's helping you feel as welcome as possible, bishop and stake president. And your point, Laura, that a lot of people are doing the right thing. Um, but part of it's you're very brave to share your story. Um, more thoughts that come to your mind 
maybe you want to get back to Hawaii <laughs> since you're taking time. I did. I did have you know but, this thought um, that I, I have been asked. You know, why do I stay in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yeah. And why do you stay in the church? Why do I stay <laughs> in the church? Um, I think the answer to that question has to do with um, all the experience, the use experiences I've had over the years. Um, that when I listened to the Spirit. <clears throat> I found the answers or the direction that I needed. Um, I that's the thing that keeps coming back to me is yes, there's these parts of the gospel that I don't fully understand and get. Um, but the very core principles of the gospel of loving God and loving our neighbor really ring true to me. Um, I love I love the story of the Good Samaritan. Um, and to me, that really I looked at that as an example of things that I can do to help others as well. I use that story a lot. Um, the other one I look at is, you know, when all the uh, people are starting to leave the, the Savior, he turns to Peter and says, will you leave me too? And, you know, Peter's answer is like, well, no, you have the words of life. And to, whom I go? To, whom, to whom would I go? And I found that I don't, I, I wouldn't know where to go. I... I, every time that I turn back to the Savior, I keep finding peace in my mind. Though at the same time, I realize that my life, the nuances that uh, are happening because of being transgender, um, even intersex, doesn't carry a lot of answers that we have right now. And it's just one of those where I have to balance the things that I, I know in terms of testimony and faith and hope with yeah, there are some things I can't explain. Or I have to, even after thinking about it and pondering and, you know, reading scriptures and things like that, that I have to set aside and put on a proverbial bookshelf and wait for those things to happen. Um, maybe I have to wait until the, the afterlife to get that uh, confirmation discussion. I would love to just have a sit-down conversation with, you know, the Savior and just go, what on earth were you thinking with me? <laughs> well, pull about that whole <laughs> um, One of the things that have given, given me strength, uh, because yeah, Satan is like, oh, you should just leave. You should just leave. Is thinking of who are my covenants to? My covenant was with, with, with was with the Savior, uh, with or with Heavenly Father, and. Um, it wasn't to any mortal person. And so I, why would I hurt that covenant? Um, because, uh, because somebody at church or a group of people at church were not being, you know, uh, welcoming or tolerant. Uh, it's like, that's between me and the Lord. And I'm not going to let, I'm stubbornly not letting anybody get in my way of that, get in between me and the Lord. <laughs> I love that. Sometimes it's just out of sheer stubbornness. Like on, on some of the de- bad days, we're just like, oh. <laughs> it's like, no, I'm going to go spite what people <laughs> I love just, that you keep going back to the gospel. It's like that, but mostly it's not like that. This is when I wish the podcasts were video so our listeners could see the two of you just smile and interact so naturally. And I can just tell <laughs> your soulmates and you're absolutely enjoying being together. Listeners, I wanted to read 
um, a Facebook post by Latter-day, Latter-day Stonecatchers. Um, Jeff Anderson is behind that account. He's on episode 655, and I've really enjoyed his content. And this is a post he made. I'll, I'll read it. I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, a response to an actual comment made in my elders' quorum. I mean, what am I supposed to say when a boy shows up to young men's activity in a skirt? And this is Latter-day Stonecatcher's responses. A few options, depending on your relationship with the youth. Hey, friend, so good to see you. You look great. I'm so glad you're here. Can you remind me your name? You made it. Seriously, I love the outfit. If anyone gives you a hard time, let me know. It's not complicated. Whether you say and do, whatever you say and do should communicate these things. You are glad they're here. You are loved and welcome. The number of the seams in the cloth below your waist does not matter because it really doesn't. You have no idea why this youth shows to wear a skirt. They just may like skirts. They may experience gender dysphoria. They may be transgendered in the process of transitioning. It could be they came from a previous or later activity. Whatever the reason they felt doing, they felt safe doing with you doing that. Don't betray their trust. If they're a transgender, and of course you know these things, Christine and Laura, a few things you should know. There's a 50% chance they've committed, considered suicide and a 20% chance they have attempted suicide in the last year. There's a 25% chance they've been physically threatened or assaulted in the last year. There's a 40% chance they do not feel safe at home. They are a child of God. And I won't read the whole post, but he goes on to um, quote scriptures that support just the suggestions in that post to be kind. Um, yeah, it's like, what does that individual need? What they need is acceptance. Um, they probably, were, I'm assuming, they might have felt scared to show up yeah, dressed I'll like that. You. I don't know, maybe. But, I bet you're uh, right. Or they're worried that somebody was going to say something to them. And what they desperately needed the most was just that that love, the unconditional love and that acceptance. And so I think it's good in our faith community to talk about, you know, what we should do in these situations. And um, we could ask this question in Elders Quorum and then read this sort of response so that people are prepared ahead of time how to respond and listen to a podcast like this. I think Latter-day Saints want to do the right thing, but we often don't know what to do because we just don't have proximity, another guest of a trans son talked about, you have to have proximity to trans people. In this post, he goes on to say, what do we imagine Jesus would do in this situation? Do we imagine him refusing a child because of the pattern of their clothing? Or do we imagine him instructing his disciples to keep the child away? I certainly can't imagine that. Jesus told his disciples to let children come unto me and not forbid them. So, um, I keep, you keep, this is your story, but I, I say these things sometimes. And, um, Paula 13, I talk about that a little bit. Gene Kratz is the, the, the commander and everything's going sideways. And maybe that's how life felt for you two, um, at times. (laughs) And it looks like just kind of a worst case scenario. And he stands up and he says, excuse me, this is going to be our finest hour. And it was okay. Apollo's 13 hour. And I think this is your fi- finest hour of your love story is this journey to, for you to have the courage, Christine, to come out and be your authentic self and live. 
And think of all the lives you're blessed, including your dear wife and your family. And, and you know, Laura, your ability to walk this road, which was complicated, and you Googled the next morning how this, you know, that was a little scary, but you've shown us how this can work. Um, and I think it's really terrific. So, and I think of the Good Samaritan story that you brought up, Christine, my wife and I had the chance to look over the road to Jericho and there was not a tree on that road, at least where we looked out and it was barren and, and sobering. And I thought of Christ lifting the Samaritans in the eyes of fellow Jews in that story. And I thought of trans people and I thought of their ability sometimes to exhibit superior moral behavior and be the heroes of the story. And I think of these parables that, to me, give me the principles to support trans people and recognize we create groups of Samaritans um, in our world. And often that's not fair. And that's what Christ is inviting us to not create or label people in a way. And so I think, you know, I think of you when I think of the Good Samaritan and uh, that you exhibit superior moral behavior and you do that. In your, minute, in your work at church and being kind, both of you, and being grace to others, but in your profession, um, all the lives you're blessing. And I think you two are just wonderful, and I'm deeply moved listening to your story. But I try to let my listeners share any last final thoughts. That's all I've got on my notes to share. I, I don't have any other thoughts. Yeah. I, I think we're just that uh, we think I think you've nailed it as your thoughts. This is that's how we feel too. Yeah. <laughs> so I really appreciate all that you said. Okay. Well, um, enjoy Hawaii. It's during the day there. So this is, um, I'm going to call you a doctor just because I'm showing respect. But <laughs> anyway, Dr. <laughs> Christine Coons and your wonderful wife, Laura, um, happy 20th anniversary from all of our listeners and helping us um, better listen, learn, and love. Um, and this is Richard Oster, your host, signing off. Mm-hmm.